All right, hey there, and welcome to episode 28 of We Can Do This. I'm excited for today's episode with Neil Malhotra. Neil is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he directs the Center for Social Innovation. He is an author, and he's also the editor of the recently released Frontiers in Social Innovation, the essential handbook for creating, deploying, and sustaining creative solutions to systemic problems. This book is a compilation of chapters from some of the smartest thinkers in social innovation, and they cover topics such as high-performance leadership as a driver of social change, design for extreme affordability, scaling social innovation, corporate decarbonization, social innovation in healthcare in the post-pandemic world, and donor-advised funds and impact investing. I've personally worked to make my way through this book, and it truly is a handbook for anyone who is looking to understand the key components of social innovation and what are the themes that someone should be thinking about and considering and really studying as it comes to uh, engaging in business in a way that makes an impact on people in the planet. I had such a good time talking with Neil we discuss some key themes in the book and we make our way around a few different topics that are brought up. And I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Like I said, it really is a primer for anyone who's interested in social change and innovation. Um, but as Neil talks about, this book is really intended to be for people who are new to the topic, but also people who are veterans. It compiles a really wide spectrum here and invites everyone around the table who wants to uh, make an impact on, on the world and use business as a vehicle for change. So excited for this episode. Let's jump in to my conversation with Neil Melhotra. All right. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm here with Neil Malhotra. Neil is the Edith M. Cornell professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he directs the Center for Social Innovation. He is the author of Leading with Values and the editor of Frontiers in Social Innovation. He's authored over 75 academic articles on topics such as the relationship between business and society. And I'm really excited to have Neil as our guest on the podcast today. So, Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to speak with your terrific audience. Yeah, I know um, everyone's going to really enjoy our conversation today because we are talking about this new release that you have released with Harvard Business Review. And I've been able to make my way through as much as I could uh, recently of this book. I love specifically the format of this book where you can kind of choose your own adventure, if you will, and go through chapters that are really relevant to you. And you really designed this as a handbook for social entrepreneurs, whether new to the field or veterans. So I'm excited to talk about this today. Do you want to briefly just introduce yourself? And I would love to hear what was the impetus behind writing and releasing this book? Sure. So my name is Neil Malhotra. I'm a professor at Stanford Business School. I direct the Center for Social Innovation. So the Center for Social Innovation provides experiences, including social entrepreneurship, impact investing to kind of train the next generation of leaders in the field. And we also engage in thought leadership. So your audience might you know, be readers of the Stanford Social Innovation Review, 
which used to be published through the Center for Social Innovation. So we get requests basically every day from social entrepreneurs saying, can you help us? I have this great idea for adventure. Can you give us advice on how to scale it up? And you know, we'd love to have the scale to respond to all of these requests, but we don't on kind of an individual basis. So as a result, I thought, how can we get the ideas we teach here at Stanford out into the world so they're not cloistered in the ivory tower so that anybody no matter whether you grew up growing up in Mumbai or Chicago can have access to these ideas. And that's the idea of the book, to basically kind of democratize and open up these ideas so they're not the domain of a privileged few, but for everybody. That's amazing. From many levels. Personally, I have a background in a completely different field, undergraduate, master's degree, and really pivoted my own way towards really having a passion for social innovation and entrepreneurship. And I know there's many people out there like me who don't have a traditional background here, but feel the pull towards integrating purpose with business, whether that be a particular area that they're passionate about or really honing in on the climate right now because there's some urgency here and really want to pivot their career this way. And it's important that these resources are accessible. So we have a lot of people here who are new to the idea of integrating impact in business. They may have come from a career and they've pivoted their way here. Talk to us about why this book might be an appropriate read right now, specifically on the outset of their journey in entrepreneurship or specifically social impact. Sure. I mean, I think kind of one thing the book is very valuable for is it it introduced people to not only the substantive frameworks, but the language that people in this industry use. And that's actually really important as you're recruiting talent, as you're trying to get capital from unique sources of capital, like whether it's philanthropists or impact investors, you kind of have to be able to talk the talk in addition to walking the walk. And so a lot of things the book does is try to reorient how social entrepreneurship is different from traditional for-profit entrepreneurship. And there's a reason why, for example, that traditional Sand Hill Road venture capital does not invest a lot in social entrepreneurship because they just have a very different business model. They're looking for unicorn companies, right? Companies that are going to be worth a billion dollars or more. And to do that, you know, you can't say, oh, we're targeted on an underprivileged population. You know, that's not like having a solution for a group like that is not going to create a billion dollar company. It might create a multi-million dollar company, but that's not the business traditional venture capital is in because they need to make 50 bets, and only one or two of those bets is going to pay off. So as a result, there's been kind of new sources of capital that have emerged. And they're looking for sort of different things beyond product market fit or lean startup, these kind of traditional ways of starting a business. Um, So for example, the book talks about theory of change and impact models. So that's like a very common framework, where instead of thinking about building as much growth and customer touch points as possible. It instead focuses on how is your business gonna socially impact society? And what is the actual step-by-step process whereby the activities of your business lead to different outputs and that leads to different social outcomes? And then how you actually have measurement strategies to look at each piece of that funnel of the theory of change. So that's just an example where I think kind of people who are in the traditional business world, they need sort of a reorienting of how people in the social purpose enterprise world think. That's really great. And it touched on something I'd love to begin talking about first is really this idea of a theory of change. 
a lot of people I think that are probably new to the space are starting a company that they want to be rooted in an ethic or particularly working towards a social cause probably stemmed from connections, right? They were making a connection between potentially a group that can be served by their company or their intervention, right? And they're making a connection between that group and potentially a customer, right? Or someone who could have a problem that needs to be solved and those can connect in a, in a meaningful or unique way. And so people might have made a connection between these two things, but they haven't gone as far as to develop a theory of change like you talk about in the book. Uh, they might have an idea. Could you talk to us briefly about, you know, how do you really take that step from having an idea or the beginning of a business model and really developing a, a theory of change that can, you could communicate to your audience or potential investors? Yeah, and I would say, I mean, this is what these investors are looking for. They're asking, what is your theory of change? Can we see it? Have you thought through it? So I kind of will explain it through an example. So EdTech, I think, is a good example that communicates a lot of this. And it shows kind of what the difference between the for-profit and social enterprise worlds are like. And it's really distinguishing clearly between what are your activities, what are your inputs, what are your outputs, and what are your outcomes. And those are all very distinct things, and they get confused a lot. So, for example, you could say, are you having a social impact? And you say, oh, well, we have like 100,000 kids using our product. Well, that's not social impact, just because you have 100,000 kids using your product that product could be doing them more harm than good. So if you, for example, compare a like standard video game company to an ed tech company, all the video game company has to ask is, do we have users? Are we making money? Are people addicted to the product, right? Whereas the social impact ed tech company has to ask, okay, like not only are kids engaged with this product, are they actually increasing their learning outcomes? How do we measure those? And then ultimately, is it translating into better quality of life? Are they being able to participate the economy at a higher level? So that's just way more complicated. But if that's really what your mission is, you have to break all those pieces out. The other difference is I think in the for-profit world, there's exceptions to this, but the customer and the user are generally the same person. And so I think that simplifies things a lot more. But in the social enterprise world, the customer is oftentimes very different than the user. So in ed tech, you're basically selling to school districts. So they're the customers. But the users are the students, right? They're not paying for the product. And so that creates like an important tension in the theory of change, which is the customers may want one thing, which is maybe for their test scores to increase. But you may want something else, which is for the actual educational enjoyment and commitment for the students to increase. But you have to sell to the customers, not to the users. So how do you balance those things? How do you make it consistent with your mission? These are all the things that I think the theory of change helps a social entrepreneur think through that traditional entrepreneurs just have the luxury of not thinking about sometimes. Yeah, there's a layer of complexity that just makes this, specifically this industry or impactful work very difficult. And when I was reading the book, I remember the image that came to mind through one of the chapters was like the difference between uh, maybe flying a plane where you have a certain amount of dials, and levers in front of you, and then maybe going into space where there's more dials and more levers. And right here, you're not just talking about what is our profit, but you're saying, hey, what are the, the output you're getting and the outcomes? And there's a layer of complexity and a, a founder or someone in this space will need to be a storyteller in a lot of ways. And what ways do you see that really being involved? Like one, being able to measure and really communicate this info, but actually also be able to tell the story to investors and your audience who 
you want to know is making a, a good and conscious decision when they purchase your product. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, I, I'm always a big believer that data kind of tells the best story. And I think kind of when traditional companies are able to use data to investors to tell their story, they have a pretty easy job because they can kind of use lean startup, right? They do use things like randomized controlled trials to try to increase engagement. But at the end of the day, a lot of what for-profit business is, is iterating quickly, creating minimal viable products, just trying to get traction and then kind of developing growth, right? And that's, you, you can see if you're growing, that means you're doing something right. And if you're not, you need to pivot and change and try to fit where the customer is. So social impact is very different because as I explained earlier, you know, just because you have a lot of growth, it doesn't necessarily mean you're making social impact. Or these, oftentimes you don't grow very fast, but you are making a big impact. And so part of telling that story is actually collecting the data. I mean, sometimes that can be randomized controlled trials, but as the book talks about, there's more like lean ways of, of getting that data too, to say, okay, like it's not enough to tell people, oh, our users increase 10% year on year or something like that. But here's the impact metrics that we said we believe in, and this is how they're changing as well. Yeah, and I imagine it could be pretty tough to stay focused on those metrics. I recall in the book a few instances where the contributors, which if we didn't mention that, there's many contributors, uh, excellent contributors in, the, in this text. And I believe it's a chapter on leadership where they were saying how important it is to make decisions on those key metrics that you begin with at the outset and not being too tempted uh, potentially by funding or by other opportunities to stray too far away from those key metrics because that's really where you're, how you're determining success for your initiatives or interventions or, or solutions. The other thing that I, I really kind of wanted to, to talk about with you is you talk about in the book sort of some of the key attributes of kind of like the modern social entrepreneur, probably a millennial or, or Gen Z maybe that's kind of stepping in and really caring about purpose. And really the three things you talk about is empathy, social justice, and technology. And being a millennial myself, it's very fun to kind of see yourself in the text and see how these three things have kind of led you into maybe the career path you've walked into or really inspire what you're working on. I'm curious, what do you think it is about these three things that are important for social entrepreneurs and maybe why that is something that's really coming to the, the forefront of our are conscious as new startups are, are, are walking into the space and prioritizing purpose. Yeah, so just to be clear, that was a, a, ch a chapter written by one of the contributors, not me. So I don't want to take credit for those ideas. But yeah, but just to kind of, I, I, that was a, one of the first chapters in the book, and it's, it's a great one. So I think that that chapter just kind of tries to lay out like kind of these trends. And it's important also for people advanced so they can understand kind of younger generations. So the chapter doesn't really talk about like how, like why there's this generational difference, but I can actually kind of speculate on that if, yeah. if you're interested. You know, I think kind of, if you think about the prior generation who grew up a lot in the, the 70s and 80s, that was kind of characterized by kind of stagnating American economy. So a lot of what the ethos of that generation was is that you have to kind of get back to core principles like shareholder value, profit maximization, so that America is competitive. And then, you know, America kind of got competitive in the 80s and 90s, but then we kind of went in the opposite direction where we're just like this late stage hyper-capitalism that doesn't focus on stakeholders. And so this next generation, they were not forged in, you know, the 70s and 80s with stagflation, et cetera. 
they're forged in like 2008, which is the financial crisis. A lot of that's stemming from corporate greed. And I think kind of the opportunities of just kind of a lot of the low-hanging fruit of the post-World War II economy is kind of over. And so I think kind of what motivates younger people is not like, okay, we're going to amass as much money as possible because all the low-hanging fruit to do that is kind of gone. So it's like, okay, well, what is the purpose of being in business? Well, it's to actually help people use the growth, like leveraging organizations to do social good. And I think it's increasingly in this stage of capitalism, it's, you have to think a little bit harder. It's not just the invisible hand, which is, oh, well, if we just like are competitive and maximize short-term shareholder value, then everyone will do better. I think this newer generation is forged in an era where that's not like an obvious connection anymore. Mm. That's really, really good insight. The one in there that I found personally intriguing is this level of empathy that's required. And I know in the, in the book, uh, a reoccurring theme is human-centered design. And actually, in our, our most recent episode, we had Y-Labs on, and Y-Labs talked about human-centered design. Do you want to share with us kind of why is that such a critical piece in developing this kind of new area of social innovation and really being keenly aware of the needs of all stakeholders? Sure. So I'll give a little bit of background for people who are kind of new to this a little bit. But there's themes in the book that recur that tie to each other, and one of them is human-centered design. Now, human-centered design is very popular in the for-profit space, too. But I think it's especially important in the social space. And so we have a chapter that's kind of written by the instructor of this class, which is called Design for Extreme Affordability. It's like a very famous class at Stanford. I mean, many people come to the university just to take that class. And a lot of people might know about the D school, the design school. It's tied to companies like IDEO. It's just it's very, very influential in promulgating this idea of design thinking. And, you know, I think kind of the basic idea is if you just sit in like a laboratory and from above paternalistically say, this is kind of the product we need to solve the problem, many of those products fail. And they fail not because they're bad products, but because you don't understand human behavior to understand kind of how regular people would respond to those. And paternalism is a problem in, in the US, don't get me wrong. But I think it's especially a problem when Western people try to go into developing economies and try to say, okay, this is the right solution for your action. As opposed to human-centered design, which says you have to invest a lot of time upfront, understanding the culture, kind of the needs of the users, and then adapting your design to meet those. So, you know, examples are, you know, there's kind of medical device products, whether it be like incubators or ways to do kind of birth delivery in sanitary ways. and you know, a lot of these birthing practices, there's like kind of cultural practices a lot of people have. So if you're not sensitive to those cultural practices and allow your technology to work with them rather than against them, then it doesn't matter if you're going to like increase infant mortality or decrease it by like 20%, people are not going to use your product, right? And so I think kind of understanding where people are coming from and then designing products to meet them where they are is going to have the biggest impact. So that's kind of the basic idea. Yeah, it's, it's really pulling us out of the center of these solutions and pulling other people in and saying, these are really built around you and, and for you. Yeah, so I'll just give you another example too. So this is not in the book. It's just, you know, so if you think, for example, of a lot of companies now working on childcare for hourly workers. The salaried workers, you know, sometimes get a lot of benefits of childcare um, through their employer. You know, there's companies you might have heard of Care.com or Bright Horizons or things like that. 
but it's a lot more complicated for companies to do this for hourly workers, even though for hourly workers, childcare is like much more of a, an issue. So when you kind of do the design-based thinking, like you think if you're going to like write this in a consultant's laboratory or office, you would say, oh, great. Okay, we just use the care.com model or the Bright Horizons model and just like export it. So that's kind of like outsourcing labor on this contract basis. And that works for salaried workers. I think they're generally fine with it. But when you interview hourly workers, where are they getting their childcare from now? They're getting it from family members and friends. And so now you're saying, okay, now you're going to shift that model to be like contract workers. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to totally change how I do my childcare. So actually, the better way to do it is these co-op models, where you basically have the workers themselves providing the childcare, many of them on site, and kind of going in and out of the childcare facility in their regular job in the warehouse or whatever. Now, that's something like you wouldn't have understood like the deep investigation and interviewing of people who are the user base that you should be using a co-op model. And the book, you know, gives like what are the exact scripts and questions, et cetera, we ask when we do design-based thinking, what we try to look for, et cetera, and how you implement that. So that's just another example of where like the paternalistic model would lead to failure. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's maybe supplemental to the book stories, even the stories in the books. That's one of the things that I found personally, like great takeaways is to hear these actual scenarios and case studies of actual, you know, students that many of them were, you know, part of Stanford that through this process and through the program, like developed some unique and world-changing models and very much centered in the HCD and design thinking. And so in the process of the book, I mean, I understand you has essentially assembled some of these great thinkers and diverse topics. And like we said at the kind of outside of the show is this is sort of built for people to pick up and go to maybe a, a chapter that is particularly helpful at the moment or is addressing a certain pain point. Is there anything, you know, throughout the book that you found uh, particularly important and that you really wanted to emphasize? Well, I think kind of one kind of theme you'll see, and I think this is why the case study approach is good, is that I think like 20 years ago, people in this space, they kind of thought through it all along the lines of nonprofit. So it's like, when what you do is you start a nonprofit and you raise money for it and you spend the money, right? And increasingly, all the case studies showed is that there's a huge diversity of organizational forms and you have to pick the right organizational form which matches your business and matches your theory of change. So, you know, that might be a benefit corporation. It might be a standard for-profit enterprise. It might be a nonprofit that uses philanthropy. It might be a nonprofit that uses earned revenue or some mix. And as you mentioned earlier, how is that going to be consistent with all, you know, all the funding pressures and et cetera? With, you know, how do you not have mission drift based on that? And so I think those are tensions that the book talks about through examples. And it's not obvious what the right answers to some of those are. But unless you kind of know those ahead of time, the world kind of catches up with you quickly. So an example, I, I mean, this is also not from the book, but you know, a lot of these financial inclusion startups, kind of fintech, that try to disrupt traditional banking, you know, they have a lot of pressure now to make revenue because they're just standard public companies, right? But they have social missions. So if you kind of don't have the nonprofit form, there's going to be pressure to meet what the investors want, which is to make money on their investments. And a lot of these financial inclusion startups, like a lot of the pressure is to behave more like a regular bank. 
And even though that's kind of wasn't their original mission. And part of that is not doing kind of the crummy stuff that banks tend to do, like overdraft fees, et cetera. But rather, it's like marketing towards like middle income customers, right? As opposed to just focusing on lower income customers. So then the question is, all right, is that consistent with your mission? Is it not? And I think these are just the hard questions the book delves into, you know. In the book, it's shared that these changes have kind of been developed over a couple of decades now. Uh, but more so, we're seeing a lot of, you know, people embracing for-profit business model and trying to affect change outside of the traditional nonprofit or foundation model. But the point really comes across to me is it's not an or, but it's a and, right? There's change that can be fostered through this for-profit business model, but often in conjunction with foundations, nonprofits, and seeing some cross-collaboration amongst these, um, specifically because there's so many foundations and nonprofits that are just well-rooted over time. Are there any... I mean, I'm curious, like kind of predictions, what you see in that space in the future. I think, you know, probably increasingly seeing for-profit companies and social impact business models, B corporations, et cetera, grow. But do you have any kind of predictions for us? I mean, the book kind of delves on this. And part of this is my opinion, but I think other contributors in the book agree with this, which is, I think a really good space for your audience to get in on now is using for-profit mechanisms for social change. And the reason for that is because the capital available is going to become more privileged. So let me explain what I mean about that. So right now, it's like really hard for like pensions, for example, to invest in impact investing funds. So impact investing is kind of like a niche product right now. So like, you know, JP Morgan or TPG will like kind of sell it to their, you know, LPs. And it's kind of like, all right, like, yeah, I like invest a lot of money and I'll invest like 5% or 10% in this like social stuff. So I feel good or something like that. But increasingly, it's going to become like a pretty embedded part of the financial structure of this world. And like an example, as you look at like BlackRock and State Street and a lot of these people, they're already saying like these ESG metrics and social impact is like going to be a really important part and they control a lot of capital. If you look at pension funds, like a lot of the pension holders are like, we don't actually care about maximizing the retirement return. We want it to be done in a socially responsible way. So you look at like TIA Craft, like teachers funds or CalPERS, CalSTRS, all these kind of major government worker funds. A lot of those people, like, they're not like, you know, investment bankers, like they are in public service careers for their whole lives. And now it's like, how do you manage the money? And they want to do it in a way that is socially responsible and does social good. So I just think as the world kind of becomes more stakeholder oriented, the capital structure and availability is to become way more open and privileged. Like if you basically are like, if some like, like CalPERS says, half our money has to be devoted to the impact investing space. I mean, that's just like way more capital available now. And it's because it's not because of some rules, because like these are just what the pension holders believe in. Yeah. And how, I mean, if you want to give us a sense of, you know, there, there might be people listening that are looking or preparing for funding. What is really available in its 2022? What is really available for people that want to fund impact-related work and would much rather be funded by this model that is really looking to fund impact. And they might be able to avoid some of the pressures of the social impact company that is still really being pressured to improve their bottom line only. 
I mean, I think a lot of this is just the opportunity, which is a lot of the traditional Sandhill firms are just not going to invest in social enterprises. You know, I think the real choice is do you go through the foundation or do you go through the impact investing fund? And, you know, a lot of foundations, they will invest sometimes in for profit, you know, or B Corp. I would say, like, look, foundations have their role, but as one of the chapters talks about, they're, they're not really nimble organizations, let's say. Like, they're kind of designed to live forever, to carry on the legacy of whoever started the foundation and make money in the stock market and, like, pay out 5% of that money and live forever. And if that's your model, it's very hard to be innovative. On the other hand, if you're, like, collecting a bunch of money from LPs and you need to deliver positive return... It's concessionary return, but it's still positive. You know, that's going to potentially lead to more innovation. Now, you're saying there could be a trade-off there, which is that there's mission drift. But that's life. Like, life is full of trade-offs. The book talks about those trade-offs. And I think that's what social entrepreneurs have to think about, which is, all right, like, what do I want to trade off? Is it okay that there might be some pressure down the line, but I'm working with capital, which is going to be you know, more innovative. And it's going to like pressure me to understand how the business model is going to work. One thing about it is if you have a great company, you're going to find competition from impact investors. And we've already seen that. Sometimes impact investors are competing for the entrepreneurial talent. And one thing that actually sells some of these firms above another is what has how committed they are to the social missions of the companies. And these companies like the impact investing firms don't want to get a reputation that they are you know, like pressuring people to, you know, be profit maximizing, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think it's a very dynamic space right now. And I would really encourage your users to think about it more broadly and that there's a lot of diverse sources of capital available. So with this book release, I'm curious, what are the outcomes that you're looking to hope to see? I mean, you've really designed this as a handbook and it sounds like, I mean, the, the themes here seem to be a bit timeless in a sense, where I hope this is something that, you know, today's social entrepreneurs are picking up you know, a decade from now too, there's great, great concepts here. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what the, the goal is of the book, which is to get the concepts out into the world because we think they're great concepts. And so, you know, if you already want to get a few of them, we have some online videos that are free that are kind of tied to the book. So you can just Google Stanford Center for Social Innovation and take it to our, to our homepage. And it'll have links to our teaching assets. And if those kind of speak to you, you can then, you know, look at the book and get a deeper dive. But I think you kind of nailed what, what our goal is in all this, which is the goal is to change the world by spreading ideas. That's our theory of change. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, I'll, I'll definitely pull some of those resources and, and link them in the show notes so people can uh, kind of immerse themselves and beyond the book. Definitely suggest people pick up the book. We'll definitely leave a link in the, the show notes as well. But kind of before we wrapped up, is there anything else you, you want to share with the audience? Well, I'm just saying that I just want to say to the audience, like, I just so proud of everyone, just love what you're doing. And I think if you're listening to a podcast like this, you've already taken the first step, which is to realize that, you know, business and organizations are not the antithesis of social good, but rather they can work in conjunction with it. And actually, like the big thing we, we preach is that actually thinking rigorously about both the social impact model and the business model in conjunction and getting those to work together is the key. And, you know, the world is not going to be changed waiting for government or just waiting for the traditional philanthropic foundations to do their work. 
is your audience that's going to change the world, which is using the levers of capitalism, entrepreneurship to make the world a better place. Hmm. Oh, I love it. And I believe it. Just as we were reading, you know, stories in the book of the chains that people are making, I, I know we're going to be continuing to tell those stories. And I think it's through people who are listening to podcasts and reading these books and doing the work. So thank you so much, Neil. It's it's really been an honor to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you taking time with me. And I know moments like these that people might be walking down the street, listening to a podcast, they're going to pick up this book and, and do something great. So thank you for your time today. And I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and for the amazing questions. All right. Well, I had a really great time chatting with Neil for this episode. If you found that anything we talked about resonated with you, I highly suggest picking up a copy of Frontiers in Social Innovation, the essential handbook for creating, deploying, and sustaining creative solutions to systemic problems. It's filled with case studies from the field discussing the challenges and opportunities social entrepreneurs and innovators face and features contributions from practitioners and philanthropists such as Laura Ariaga Andreessen, Kim Starkey, Bill Meehan, and more. And I'll make sure to leave the link in the show notes for you to buy the book if you're interested. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love if you would take just a second to send this to a friend who's also working to use business as a vehicle for change. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, go ahead and click subscribe in your podcast player so you don't miss out on new episodes. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.